The sermon text today is Exodus 7, 14 through 8, 19. You will notice there is not a New Testament reading this morning. It's because the Old Testament reading, the sermon text, is, is so long. And so we will give our attention only to this passage today. Hear now the reading of God's most holy word, Exodus 7, starting in verse 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning. As he is going out to the water, stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him, and take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent. And you shall say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you, saying, Let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed. Thus says the Lord, By this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, With the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn into blood. The fish in the Nile shall die, and the Nile will stink, and the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. And the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over the rivers, their canals, and their ponds, and all their pools of water, so that they may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, even in vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded. In the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants, he lifted up the staff and struck the water in the Nile, and all the water in the Nile turned to blood. And the fish in the Nile died, and the Nile stank, so that the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile. There was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. But the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts, So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. Pharaoh turned and went into his house, and he did not take even this to heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile for water to drink, for they could not drink the water of the Nile. Seven full days passed after the Lord had struck the Nile. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go, that they may serve me. But if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will plague all your country with frogs. The Nile shall swarm with frogs that shall come up into your house and into your bedroom and on your bed and in the houses of your servants and your people and into your ovens and your kneading bowls. The frogs shall come up on you and on your people and on your servants. And the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Stretch out your hand with your staff over the rivers, over the canals, over the pools, and make frogs come up on the land of Egypt. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt, and the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. But the magicians did the same by their secret arts, and made frogs come up on the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Plead with the Lord to take away the frogs from me and from my people, and I will let the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. Moses said to Pharaoh, Be pleased to command me when I am to plead for you and for your servants and for your people that the frogs may be cut off from you and your houses and be left only in the Nile. And he said, Tomorrow. Moses said, Be it as you say, so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. The frogs shall go away from you and your houses and your servants and your people. They shall be left only in the Nile. So Moses and Aaron went out from Pharaoh and Moses cried to the Lord about the frogs, and he had agreed with, as he had agreed with Pharaoh. And the Lord did according to the word of Moses. The frogs died out in the houses, the courtyards, and the fields. And they gathered them together, and heaps in the land stank. 
But when Pharaoh saw that there was respite, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Then the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth so that it may become gnats in all the land of Egypt. And they did so. Aaron stretched out his hand with his staff and struck the dust of the earth. And there were gnats on man and beast. All the dust of the earth became gnats in all the land of Egypt. The magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not. So there were gnats on man and beast. Then the magician said to Pharaoh, This is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. So far the reading of God's most holy word. May he add his blessing to the preaching of it this morning. So you can see we've come now to the story of the ten plagues. If we take plague to mean disease, then plague is really not the best word to describe the judgments that God poured out on the Egyptians, for only two of the ten involved diseases. But if we understand plagues to mean a blow or a wound, or a thing that causes trouble or irritation, these being both valid definitions of the word plague, then the term is fitting, for God did strike the Egyptians with these ten judgments, which brought progressively increasing suffering upon them. Uh, The Bible does not really refer to these judgments as plagues, but as signs and wonders. And even when we see the word plagues in our English translations, um, really the word may also mean to strike. So God plagued Egypt with this or that. He he struck Egypt with this or that. Uh, So that is how we are to view these, uh, these plagues. Uh, as signs and wonders. In these judgments, God was demonstrating to the Egyptians, to the Hebrews, indeed to the whole world, that He was God Most High, the Lord who had entered into covenant with Israel, the Almighty, Sovereign, Self-existent, and Unchanging One. These, These plagues as we call them, and I think it is fine to call them that, so long as we understand what they were, these plagues were signs and wonders. They were signs and wonders which pointed to the the supremacy of of God, of of Yahweh, over all things. Uh, That is what is being demonstrated here. I suppose that a sermon could be devoted to each sign, but I've decided to take three at a time, and then to give special attention to the tenth plague, the death of the firstborn of Egypt. Uh, This approach, uh, to take three of them at a time, actually corresponds to the literary structure of the narrative. Uh, Scholars have noticed that the first nine plagues are presented to us in three cycles of three. If we pay careful attention to how this is all structured literarily, we see that That they're lumped together in this way. Uh, For example, you'll see that the first plague involves an outdoor confrontation with Pharaoh in the morning. The second plague involves an indoor confrontation with Pharaoh that is more private. Uh, Moses speaks to Pharaoh in his court. And the third plague is initiated by Moses as he performs some symbolic action outdoors with limited confrontation, no confrontation at all really, uh, with Pharaoh. And the same pattern is found in the accounts of plagues 
4, 5, and 6, and then 7, 8, and 9. It's subtle, uh, but even if we notice the length, uh, the, the, the length that is given to, to the space that is given to each plague in, in, the, in the written narrative, we'll see that there is this, this cycle, three cycles of three, and then special attention is given to the tenth of the ten plagues. So that's how I'll handle these plagues in uh, the coming sermons. Um, with each of these cycles, there is intensification. And here I have a bit of a side note. One should probably think of the book of Revelation and how it is structured with its repeating cycles and progressive intensification as we move throughout that book. Something similar is happening here in the Exodus narrative. The important thing to remember is that these plagues, or better yet, these signs and wonders, were all directed at the gods of Egypt. Uh, That's something that modern readers might miss, uh, because we are so far removed from that that culture uh, and from the religion of the Egyptians. But the Hebrews would have recognized this instantaneously, for remember they were slaves in that land for for 400 years. They were well aware of uh, the religion of the Egyptians. Uh, They would have recognized immediately that God, with each one of these plagues, was striking a blow to uh, the the gods of, of Egypt. The Egyptians worshipped many gods, and these false gods of Egypt were all connected with either the Nile River, the land the sky, or with Pharaoh himself. Uh, So, all of the gods of Egypt, there were many of them, can be categorized in this way. They're either associated with the great river, the land of Egypt itself, the sky, or with Pharaoh himself. And it is not necessary to be an expert in the religion of the Egyptians to appreciate what is going on in this story. The Lord is clearly here demonstrating that the earth and everything in it is His. The earth... And everything in it is His. He is the one true God. He is the Creator of heaven and earth. He alone is divine. God is, and everything else that is must be regarded as a creature of His. The Nile, the land of Egypt, and Pharaoh himself, they exist and existed only because the self-existent, eternal and unchanging one determined to bring them into existence. So you can see how God is in this moment just kind of setting everything straight in a most fundamental way. Can you see it? What was the error of the Egyptians? Well, they had confused creator and creation. They had begun to view things that were created by God as, as if they were divine themselves. That line between creator and creation had been blurred by them terribly, and such is the case with all false religion. All forms of idolatry make this fundamental error. They, they blur the distinction between Creator and creation. And that was the case in Egypt. And here is the thing, most broadly speaking, that God was setting straight. He was de- demonstrating that He alone is God, that He is sovereign over the Nile, over the land of Egypt, over the sky, over Pharaoh himself. These are not divine creatures. These are only creatures of the Creator, the one and only true God. This is all being demonstrated 
and the outpouring of these ten plagues. And more than this, it is also being demonstrated that God, the one true God, had entered into covenant with Israel. He promised to redeem them, to make them into a great nation, and to bring a Savior into the world through them. And these ten signs and wonders are a demonstration of all that. God is sovereign over all things. He is the one and only God. He is the Creator. Everything else is creation. And Israel, Old Covenant Israel, was the apple of His eye. This was His chosen people. And He was going to judge those who were oppressing them. So let us not lose sight of this big picture perspective as we consider the individual signs and wonders that God worked in Egypt through His servants Moses and Aaron. We'll consider the first three plagues today, and I have five brief observations to make concerning each one of them before turning to reflections and suggested application. This will move very quickly, brothers and sisters. Don't panic when I say that I have five applications to make about each of these three points. It will move very quickly. Um, And in fact, I spend the most time on the first sign and what is said regarding the first Some things will apply to the second and third. Those points will be more brief. So first, concerning the water turned to blood. Notice these five things. One, notice how the story begins. With a reference to the previous sign and to Pharaoh's hardness of heart. I think it is right that we consider the previous sign, that is the staff turned to a snake, as an introductory sign and not as one of the plagues. For it was performed before Pharaoh and his officials, but Egypt was not struck he was not, Egypt was not struck. And for this reason, I think this sign is to be considered introductory to the plague cycle. In other words, that introductory sign was a warning to Pharaoh. He saw it, and he was hardened. He would not let the people go, just as the Lord had said. And so remember that this theme of God hardening Pharaoh's heart so that he might display his power through him runs throughout this entire narrative. I've already made much of this in previous sermons. Two, notice the demand. What is the demand that is is made by God and uh, by Moses and Aaron as His his representatives? Um, This demand will be repeated throughout the narrative. It's found in verse 15. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he is going out to the water, stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him, and take in your hand the staff that turned to the serpent, and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you, saying... Let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed. Let my people go, so that they may serve me in the wilderness, is the demand. It's not a new demand. It's going to be repeated time and time again. And I will continue to draw your attention to this demand, because it's so significant. The Hebrews were redeemed by God, so that they might serve Him. We have to notice this pattern, because this pattern remains today In God's redemptive activities, He redeems us so that we might serve Him. He redeems us so that we might worship Him. To serve God is to worship Him. To serve God is to obey Him in the whole of life. To serve God is to have Him as Lord and King. And we also have been redeemed to worship brothers and sisters. We've been delivered from the domain of darkness so that we might serve the Lord. This is the flip side of the coin of salvation, if you will. We've been delivered from something. We've been delivered to something. We've been rescued from one kingdom. We've been transferred into another, you see. To say it differently, we have not been redeemed to live independent and autonomous lives for our own glory and pleasure, but to serve a new master. We've been redeemed 
to serve a new master. And this is good news because our previous master was harsh and oppressive. His kingdom was a kingdom of darkness, death, and despair. But our new master, Christ the Lord, is merciful and kind. His kingdom is one of light and life. It is one of glory. It is one of hope. In Him, we find true life and true satisfaction. And so that is, what, that is why I say this is good news and not bad news, that we've been redeemed from one master to serve another. Why, why is that good news? Because our, our new master is so very good. He's so very gracious and kind. I wonder if you could remember what Paul said concerning the way in which salvation is received. He said in Romans 10.9, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. So, so salvation, that is salvation from sin and its consequences, is received by faith. That is what is taught here. But to be saved, one must have Jesus as, as Lord. He, yes, He must be our Savior, our Messiah. We must place our trust in Him and in His finished work. But He is to be regarded as Lord. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. Uh, you know, there is a teaching out there. I'm not sure if how, promin how prominent it is today. I haven't encountered it personally in, in a while. But it is this view that it is possible to have Jesus as Savior, but not as Lord. Has anyone heard this view? Um, you might have to really listen for it, because it, it's not stated quite in such a direct way, but, but you can see it. it. It's possible to have Jesus as Savior, but not as Lord, is the idea. That seems to be entirely inconsistent with the clear teaching of Holy Scripture. To have Jesus as Savior is to confess that He is Lord. Now, whether or not we are good servants is a whole other question. You know, whether or not we honor Him consistently as Lord, uh, you, you know, uh, that is something we can talk about. But to come to Jesus as Savior means that we come to Him as Lord. And yes, through the process of sanctification and through the process of maturing in Christ, we come to honor Him as Lord more and more consistently. That is all true. But we must reject this, this kind of, of teaching that says that Jesus may be Savior but not Lord. No, to have Him as Savior is to have Him as Lord. We've been redeemed and rescued from, from terrible bondage, from an impressive Master. We've been transferred into a new kingdom with a new king who is gracious and kind. We serve him because he has loved us and because we love him. For Old Covenant Israel, all of this was physical and earthly. For us it is spiritual and heavenly, but it is no less true. As we consider this demand delivered to Moses, by Moses to Pharaoh, we must regard it as, as very bold. Don't you agree? Um, for Moses and Aaron to, to say to this powerful figure, the Lord says, let my people go. It, it was a very bold request. And what it does is it sets God and it sets Pharaoh toe to toe, if you will. Um, it's as if God said to Pharaoh, you regard yourself as the master of these Hebrews, but they are mine. They are mine. Indeed, all are mine, even you, Pharaoh. I'm speaking as if God here, right? And even this land and nation, it is mine. But these are mine, referring to the Hebrews. These are mine 
in a special way, for I have set them apart and entered into covenant with them. These people are the apple of my eye. Through them I will redeem a people for myself for all eternity from every tongue, tribe, and nation. They are mine. Let them go so they might serve me instead of you. That, that's the scene that is being set. You can see it, can't you? God and Pharaoh uh, being set toe-to-toe, as it were. Three, notice the reason given for the coming plague. It is found in verse 17 where we read, Thus says the Lord, By this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand I will strike the water that is in the Nile and it shall turn to blood. And so here the purpose for the plague is stated. It's stated clearly, very directly. Here's why this is about to happen. It is so that you would know that I am the Lord. This is the purpose for all of the plagues. By these plagues, the Egyptians, and yes, even the Hebrews, and all who would hear of these signs and wonders from that day onward, would know that the God of the Hebrews is the Lord. So we are not left to wonder why the Lord did all of this. Why did He harden Pharaoh's heart? Why did He inflict the Egyptians? Why were these plagues poured out in this way? Why ten of them? Why the drawn out process? Why the drama? God explicitly reveals the reason. By this you shall know that I am the Lord. So these plagues were a demonstration, a public demonstration that God is the Lord and that Pharaoh, the Nile, the land of Egypt and its many so-called gods were not. He's the Creator. They're the creature. He's the Sovereign One. These are all His subjects. He's setting it all straight and He's doing it in a public way at the time of the Exodus. For Notice the sign itself. Uh, The first plague, in it the Nile would be turned to blood. As the story continues, we learn that when Aaron touched the water with his staff at the command of God and at the command of Moses, it was not only the water in the Nile that was turned to blood, but all the surface water in the land of Egypt, the Nile, the other rivers, the canals, the ponds, even the water stored in wooden and stone vessels, All of it was turned to blood. This was a great catastrophe, of course, for the Egyptians. The effect was so widespread that the people of Egypt had to dig new wells to find drinking water for themselves. So that water was left unaffected. So all surface water was turned to blood. It was useless to them. Even the fish began to die in these waters. And the people, you can picture them, right, are frantically digging new wells in order to provide drinking water for themselves. It must have been quite a burden upon the common man in Egypt. I doubt Pharaoh was ever thirsty though. He probably was well supplied by his servants. I'm sure he was brought water immediately and he enjoyed the best of it. But please allow me to briefly address two questions related to this first sign. One, did the surface water in Egypt turn from the substance of water to the substance of blood? Or did the water turn red in color due to some natural phenomenon known to the Egyptians, such as an algae bloom or runoff typically associated with the rainy season? Have you ever, have you ever heard this? You might be surprised what I say about this. Um, which is it? Uh, you, you should know that there is a view out there. There is a view out there that regards all of these plagues as natural. Natural phenomenon. Um, I think there is some merit to this view, provided that we do not go so far as to say 
that it was only natural and to deny the hand of the God of God in the matter. I mean, so clearly, this was the work of God. The timing of it, the the extreme nature of these these plagues. It's obviously the finger of God. In fact, the magicians themselves even confess it after the third plague. This is the finger of God. This is the hand of God. These were signs and wonders. Clearly, they were not natural phenomenon only. But I think it is right for us to notice that the Lord did use common things to judge the Egyptians. He used things like frogs. It's almost comical to think, isn't it, to think of this, of the frogs coming up onto the land. and They're just everywhere, even in the kneading bowls of, of the Egyptians. But he uses things like frogs, biting insects, flies, pestilence among the livestock, pestilence among the people, hail, locusts, darkness, and death to pour out his wrath upon the Egyptians to demonstrate his sovereign power over them and all created things. Everything that I've just mentioned here, they're all natural things, aren't they? It's as if God turns nature against the Egyptians in order to demonstrate His supremacy over nature, in order to demonstrate that He is God and these things, these created things, are not. So it's true of of all of these things that I've just mentioned, natural things being used to bring judgment upon the, the Egyptians. These were all naturally occurring and common things that God used. But he used them in an uncommon way, in a miraculous way. For example, the Egyptians knew what it was like to be irritated by frogs and by gnats. That wasn't brand new to them. Um, They knew what it was like to to be uh, irritated by these things. But in these plagues, the invasion of the common frog and the common gnat was such that even the sorcerers of Egypt would admit, this is the finger of God. All of these events were too severe, too timely to dismiss them as mere natural occurrences. No, instead, we must see that the God of Israel was behind it, and He used natural things, as I have said, uh, to pour out His judgment upon the Egyptians. God judged the Egyptians by turning their beloved water, land, and sky, and all of the so-called gods associated with them against them. So back to the question about the water. Was it turned from water to blood? or from the typical color of the water to the color blood red? In my opinion, either view is acceptable. The Hebrew word can mean either. Uh, It can mean either. The vast majority of its occurrences, it refers to literal blood, but it can be also used in reference to the color. And so, yes, we must not make the mistake of trying to reduce these plagues down to mere natural phenomena, but these these were in fact signs and wonders, brothers and sisters. That, That is clear. But I think it is acceptable to recognize that God may have used something natural and common, like an algae bloom, to turn the surface water of Egypt blood red. I think this would be perfectly consistent with the other nine plagues, wouldn't it? Natural things being used in a supernatural way to bring judgment upon the Egyptians. Uh, He used gnats, for example, common gnats, to torment the Egyptians. The unique thing about the gnats is that they were that there were lots and lots of them, and they came and went at the command of God. And I'm saying that the same may be true of the red water. Two, how were the sorcerers of Egypt able to replicate this sign before Pharaoh? So here's that theme again. The staff was turned to a snake, and the sorcerers replicated the sign. I say it was trickery. You can kind of imagine how they could pull this off with a sleight of hand, you know, to, to make it appear as if a snake staff turned to to a snake. And so too here, they replicate the sign of 
water turning to blood, uh, water turning perhaps blood red. It's not difficult to imagine how they could find a way to do this in miniature and isolated form before Pharaoh. Uh, One thing to notice though is that the sorcerers of Egypt, though they might have been able to perform a trick like this to to alleviate uh, Pharaoh's troubled mind, they were not able, notice, to undo the sign that Moses and Aaron worked. Wouldn't that have been better, you know? If they had true power, uh, why were the Egyptians tormented by this undrinkable water for seven days? If they had true power, why would they not simply turn the blood-red water back to drinkable water, you know? They could not do that, though they could replicate uh, this sign in miniature form before the eyes of Pharaoh. The fifth and last thing that I wish to draw your attention to regarding this first plague is the result. Verse 22, But the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts, so Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. So yes, it is true that God hardened Pharaoh's heart, this we know. But it is also true that Pharaoh chose to disbelieve. He persisted in his disbelief. And considered from that vantage point, we may make some observations regarding Pharaoh's disbelief. I think we may say confidently that clearly he was looking for any reason to dismiss the sign. Wasn't he? Think of what was going on right in front of his eyes. I mean, truly a a miraculous thing. Any reasonable person would say, this is the finger of God right now. All of this water, the Nile, the canals, the ponds, the water basins turn blood red, undrinkable. Fish are dying off. And all at the command of God worked through Moses and Aaron. Any reasonable person would say, this is the finger of God and would relent. But instead, Pharaoh seems to be looking for any reason to persist in his unbelief and to dismiss this as coincidence or natural phenomenon. And he finds his way out when the sorcerers reproduce this miracle in miniature. He must have been looking for it. And I think that is how unbelief works. Uh, This is what men with hard and sinful hearts do. They will look for any reason to persist in their disbelief and they will take the opportunity so that they might continue on in their ways. And so it is when it comes to the belief in the existence of God. Everything in the created world screams out continuously concerning our Maker, that He exists and that He is powerful. But fallen men and women will always find some way to suppress this truth. They'll deny the existence of God, even though all of the evidence in the world, in the universe, points to the reality of His existence. It does. It's reasonable to believe that there is a Creator when you observe the natural world. Perfectly reasonable to believe it. It it is the conclusion that we ought to come to, given the immensity of the universe, given its order, given its complexity. Where did it come from? Out of nothing? I think not. Someone must have put it into existence That would be the reasonable conclusion. And yet men and women live on this planet continuously trying to find a way out to dismiss the reality of the existence of God. And and so it is regarding Christ our Redeemer to this present day when men and women are presented with the truth regarding His life, death, and resurrection. Those with hard 
and unrepentant hearts will surely find a way, some way to to dismiss the truth, to push them to the side. We see this especially on display in, in, um, in the Gospels near the end in the book of Acts, how here men are presented with, with factual evidence regarding the resurrection of Christ from the dead. But what do they do? They find one way or another to, to dismiss it so they do not have to believe, so that they do not have to change their ways. I think we can learn that from what Pharaoh does here in this narrative. Now, some of these observations that I've made concerning the first plague, they apply to the others. And because of this, the five observations that I have concerning the second and third plagues are going to be much more brief. But one, as we continue on now to the second plague, the frogs, consider again the introductory remarks. The Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go, that they may serve me. But if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will plague or strike all your country with frogs. Notice that this confrontation with Pharaoh took place inside his court, as opposed to out in the open. Go into Pharaoh, the Lord said. And this is the setting of the confrontation of plagues 2, 5, and 8, the middle plagues in each of the three plague cycles. The demand is the same, let my people go that they may serve me. The threat is that the land and the homes of the Egyptians would be inundated with frogs. I'll plague all your country with frogs, the Lord says. Again, plague here means strike. I will strike all your country with frogs. You might say, well, what's the big deal? They're just frogs, you know. Have you ever had a frog croaking outside your window at night? You can't sleep? I mean, that's nothing in comparison to what's described here. They're, they're, they're in... They're in the houses. They're in the kneading bowls, even. You could imagine the wives of the pharaohs. You know, no, no offense to the ladies. Maybe you're brave in this regard. I don't know. But opening up the cabinet door to, to make some bread, and, and there you have a frog looking at you. To deal with that constantly would be tormenting. Uh, the, the Egyptians, they didn't sleep on beds raised up like ours, but down on the ground. So it must have been difficult to sleep at night with these things hopping around. They didn't have electricity as we do, so you get up in the middle of the night, you know, as we all do, and you step on one of these things. It must have been a major nuisance, a, a torment to the Egyptians. Two, notice that the plagues, that, that plagues one and two, were irritations to the Egyptians, as I've just said, but they did not take away life nor do damage to health. The Egyptians were able to dig wells for water, and when the frogs invaded the land, they were a severe annoyance, but nothing more than that. I'm here drawing your attention to the fact that the severity of the plagues will progressively intensify. Uh, eventually, men and beasts will be struck and affected physically. The last plague involves the death of the firstborns of Egypt. Three, notice that with the plague of the frogs, Pharaoh did begin to acknowledge that it was the Lord's doing. He asked Moses to plead with the Lord to remove them. Isn't that interesting? So for the first time, Pharaoh acknowledges the Lord and says, Moses, would you go and ask the Lord to remove them? So it's short of, this is the finger of God. But there is a hint here that Pharaoh is beginning to get the message. Moses, please go and plead with the Lord to remove them. And Moses, notice, did also permit Pharaoh to pick the time. Certainly this was to help prove that this was the Lord's doing and not some coincidence, naturally occurring phenomenon or trickery. Uh, yes, I'll pray, 
you pick the time that the frogs will be removed. And I think we are to take the word tomorrow to mean as soon as possible, right? Plead with me this evening so that they might be gone tomorrow as soon as possible. For the purpose is stated again in verse 10. This was all so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. Same purpose, stated a little bit differently. There is no one like the Lord our God. Here, Moses is emphasizing that God is utterly unique. He is utterly unique. There is no one like Him. You might say, well, aren't we made in the image of God? Well, yes, in that sense we have been made to correspond to Him. So we may speak in that way. We are like God in these respects, having been made in His image. But when we say that there is no one like our God, here it is the distinction between Creator and creature that is being emphasized. Here it is the distinction between the Divine One and all other creatures that is being emphasized. In this sense, there is no one like Him. He is the one and only. He is God, and there is no other. Five, notice the result. When relief finally came, Pharaoh hardened his heart and would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. The phrase, as the Lord had said, refers us back to that original statement regarding God hardening Pharaoh's heart. But here it is said that he, Pharaoh, hardened his heart and would not listen to them. So both things are true. God is sovereign over Pharaoh and even actively hardening his heart, but Pharaoh is hardening his own heart. When did this hardening take place Notice it took place when relief came. When relief came. He actually agreed to let the people go to worship, didn't he? If you'll just plead with me, Moses, I'll I'll do it. But when the relief came, Pharaoh relented and persisted in his hardness of heart. And isn't this how men and women still to this present day persist in their hardness of heart and unbelief? How many... Uh, will cry out to the Lord and say, Lord, if only you will do this or that, I will honor you as Lord. I will follow you as King. I will worship you. And then the crisis passes, the relief comes, and they fall back to their old ways. Uh, Here we have another opportunity to kind of analyze how, how disbelief works, how hardness of heart works. The Lord must change us to the core, brothers and sisters, if we are to truly worship and serve Him. Now for five very brief observations regarding the third plague. In this third plague, gnats were sent throughout all the land of Egypt. One, this plague is initiated outdoors and with no confrontation with Pharaoh. This is the case with plagues 3, 6, and 9, the third plagues in each plague cycle. Two, Aaron was instructed to strike the dust of the earth to initiate the plague of the gnats. So now, we see that the Nile has been struck, the waters, and here the earth is struck, and when the earth is struck, the sky will be filled with insects. So you see there are these realms that are being affected the water, the earth, and the sky. The gods of Egypt, as I have been said, are all associated with these these realms. But God is demonstrating His sovereignty over all of them. He is the Lord, 
the Sovereign One, the Creator of heaven and earth and everything therein. Three, gnats are to be understood as biting insects, perhaps mosquitoes. The next plague will involve flies. But these are gnats, and the Hebrew word really does indicate that these are are biting insects. Perhaps they are mosquitoes. If you've ever been in a mosquito-infested environment, you know that also this is torment. Uh, This is a very bothersome thing to be inundated with insects like these. For the magicians, notice, were unable to dispute the sign as they did with the staff to the snake and the water turned blood red and with the frogs. And really it's not difficult to imagine why. I think if you pay a careful attention to what's going on here, you're seeing that these magicians were tricksters, you know. Um, in these other instances, you could see how they could in some way reproduce uh, the, the, the signs. But evidently, they were unable to reproduce this sign uh, because they had not learned how to train swarms of mosquitoes. Uh, you could see why this would be difficult to, to somehow capture huge quantities of mosquitoes and, and to keep them alive and, and to release them in such a way uh, so as to replicate uh, this sign. They simply could not do it. And so they finally, they finally acknowledged what Pharaoh had probably been long, uh, you know, long, long expecting and, and anticipating. This was the finger of God. And these magicians were a fraud. Five, this forced the magicians to confess what Pharaoh had probably long suspected. I guess I got ahead of myself there. This is the finger of God, they say. But notice that Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. And so he persists in his unbelief. This is his own doing, but it is also God's doing, we know. In this way, God was judging Pharaoh, and God was judging the Egyptians so as to demonstrate His power to the Egyptians, to the Hebrews, and indeed to all the world, even to us, to this present day. I would like to make three brief reflections upon uh, this story, these first three plagues poured out upon uh, the Egyptians before we conclude First of all, I think it is important for us to acknowledge the uniqueness, the utter uniqueness of this event when seeking to apply the ten plagues to our circumstances. I mean, we we have been trained as as Bible-believing Christians, right, to always approach the text of Scripture with the intent to apply it to our own lives. And I think that is right, and and we will do so in, in just a moment. But one thing we must do is, is recognize the utter uniqueness of this event in the history of redemption. God never before had done this sort of thing through a figure like Moses to redeem a chosen people out of a nation and to lead them towards a, a promised land. Never did He do it before. Never has He done it afterwards. Never will He do it again. We should not expect in any way a repeat of this Exodus event, you see. Um, so we must acknowledge that. But while acknowledging that, I think it is also right for us uh, to find in the ten plagues an example of how God judges nations even to this present day. Uh, nations, even to this present day, are accountable before God. 
God is not just supreme and sovereign over the church. He is also supreme and sovereign over all nations. You know this to be true. He is Lord Most High. Christ has had all authority in heaven and on earth given to Him upon His resurrection and ascension. Uh, he is Lord Most High. He, he has the name that is above every name in heaven and on earth, you see. And so even the nations of the earth, the, the nations that deny His existence perhaps, they are still going to be held accountable to God. On the last day, yes, but even presently, God does still judge nations today. And what does He judge them for? Well, in brief, He judges them for failing to do what He has called them to do. Those who govern kings in high places, governors, have been called by God to uphold justice. They have been called by God to enact and to enforce laws that are that are based upon God's moral law, His moral law, which has been revealed in nature and even more clearly in the pages of Holy Scripture. Nations today are to uphold justice. They are to enact laws uh, that are in accord with God's moral law. And when they fail to do this, when they begin to enact laws that are contrary to God's moral law, when they begin to, to punish the good and to reward the wicked, we may say with confidence that nation will come under God's condemnation. You understand this, don't you, brothers and sisters? And I do see that we have an example of how God does this in the ten plagues. Notice that God began to strike at the idols of Egypt. He began to judge Egypt by, by striking at the false gods of Egypt and even turning these things that were in fact just natural against them. And I think we should not be surprised when we see God judge rebellious nations in the same way to this present day. We do not worship many gods in our culture um, in an overt way. We do not craft idols for ourselves. We do not say that the sun is a god and that the Nile is a god. We do not bow down to these these natural things and worship them as if they are divine. But you do understand we are a very idolatrous people, nevertheless. It's just, it's just more hidden. You know, it, it's just concealed. What are our idols, brothers and sisters, here in our land, in our nation? What do we love? What do we live for? I'm here speaking, we, not us, but we as a, as a, as a nation, as a people. What do we worship and serve? You know, um, I think, in fact, we do worship nature in our own way. Everything is about Mother Earth, isn't it? Um, we certainly worship money and power and fame. Just open your eyes and see. The evidence of it is all around you. This is what we worship here in this land. And so, do not be surprised. If in this land where justice is perverted, where right is called wrong and wrong is called right, not just, not just by the common man, but when this is even manifesting itself in our legal system, when it's legislated, it kind of reminds me of what was going on in Sodom and Gomorrah a long time ago. Not just perverse behavior amongst the people, but, but a culture who had grown so perverse that they had 
come to consider right, wrong, and wrong, right. You know, in a, in a collective way, to where it became the law of the land, the way, the custom of the land. We, we see it all around us. Do not think that God is blind to it. He is not. He sees, and He is sovereign over all. He will surely judge these rebels of His. Within the church, there are pastors who are to minister the Word of God to the congregation. Within the civil realm, there are governors who are called to serve as God's ministers too, in a completely different way. They're to minister justice. They're to enact and uphold laws that are based upon God's moral law. But when His ministers go rogue, it will bring judgment upon that nation. And so we must see how God works. I think, yes, the plagues that were poured out upon the Egyptians, they were unique. The Exodus was unique. It's not going to be repeated again, but we have here an example of how God judges nations. That's my second reflection. Three, as I was writing this sermon and trying to bring it to a conclusion, I began to think of how this must have looked through the eyes of the Hebrews. You notice they're not really mentioned here at all. Um, what has happened to the Hebrews, the elders of the people, and, and, and to that great population of oppressed slaves? Where are they? They're, they're not mentioned here. It's Moses and Aaron, and it's Pharaoh, and it's the Egyptians being afflicted. But what would it have looked like through the eyes of, of the Hebrews? Remember, they were greatly discouraged and dejected. They weren't really interested in listening to Moses anymore. They went away. But certainly they are watching all of this. Certainly they too are observing the water turn blood red. They are hearing about um, these frogs and seeing them themselves and the gnats. They are observing Moses and Aaron and, and the work that they are doing. What were they thinking? We know that they would eventually follow Moses out of Egypt. So I think it is safe to assume that they themselves were progress, progressively convinced of the power of God by these signs and wonders. And I think this should remind us that God does not only reveal Himself in grace, but also in His powerful and righteous judgments. What am I getting at there? I think it is important for us to remember that as God's people, we may have to sit and watch and observe when God pours out His judgments upon a people. And, and we can give praise to God for this too. Does that sound strange to you? What do we pray for so often? Lord, have mercy. God, be gracious to us and to this people. Lord, bring people to salvation. These are, of course, the prayers that should be on our lips. The first prayers that we should pray. But does God not also reveal His glory through judgments too? And should we not also be comforted in some way by God's just judgments poured out? I think we should. You know, this just came to my mind. I read of a report of a group of, of Christian missionaries, um, relief worker types, uh, being taken hostage in, I believe it was Haiti, very recently. We should probably pray about that later in the afternoon service. Um, and in the reporting it was reported that the relief agency prayed that the perpetrators come to repentance. Is that the right thing to pray? I say, yes, it is. That these thugs who have taken these hostages captive for a ransom, 
that they come to repentance? Was it all that they prayed for? I don't know. That's all that was reported. But in my mind, I instantly began to think, how about praying for justice too? I think that is right for us to pray for, isn't it? Bring them to repentance, Lord. And if they will not turn, bring them to justice. Bring them to swift justice. And preserve your people in the midst of this great trial. That's what I'm getting at here, I think. It's that we need to to long to see God's glory put on display, both in mercy and grace, and in His judgments. It seems to be what Paul talks about in Romans 9 as he reflects upon the entire Exodus experience, in fact. um, This is what he will do, certainly at the end of time, when Christ returns to judge and to bring His people into glory. And so we should not be afraid to witness this, to even pray for it in some ways, and to be encouraged in it. I'm sure that the Hebrews were, as they witnessed these plagues poured out. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Father, the theme for us has been that You would help us to sojourn well in this world, as we consider the work that You did amongst the Egyptians and amongst the Hebrews in the days of Moses, uh, for they were sojourners and we are sojourners too. Uh, God, we do pray that You would have mercy upon this world, that You would pour out Your grace, that we would see Your gospel go forth, and that many would come to faith in Christ, that they would turn from their sins and run to Him. This is what we long for, O Lord. Have mercy upon us. Pour out Your grace. Advance Your kingdom. I pray also that You would protect Your people, that You would make us strong and bold and courageous, that we would walk the walk uh, in an unwavering way. And, Father, that You would, in fact, judge the wicked with righteous judgment. We know that You are able to do this even now as You restrain evil in this world until the coming of Christ, the new heavens and new earth. We pray that You would. Help us to trust in You as the Sovereign One. You are sovereign over heaven and earth. There is nothing that exists outside Your great power. We give You thanks for this. And we long for the day when Christ returns, where all is made new. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. This is our prayer. In His name we pray. And all of God's people say, Amen.